Well, we come to our catechism reading today, which again is Lord's Day 42. This is question and answer 110 and 111 concerning the Eighth Commandment. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, which governing authorities punish, but in God's sight, theft also includes all evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Question 111. What does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. There is a Facebook group out there that invites all of its members and participants to share pictures of abandoned properties around Indiana. So that if you stumble upon an abandoned uh, property or, or an old house or church or whatever, um, then you take pictures and then you post it online and people kind of marvel at the glory that is now faded. And they, they, uh, some people can identify what the buildings are and they talk about better times for that property. They knew the family that lived there. Uh, very interesting group to see people interact with and, and the nostalgia that gets kicked up in people's hearts, the longing for something better that is to come in people's hearts, even unbelievers. Uh, because many of these properties were beautiful. Some of them were expansive and really well kept. You can see that, that there was care in the architecture and that there would have been something really beautiful to look at in its heyday. But now all of these places are empty and falling apart and the roofs are caving in from water damage. And it just In many cases, personal possessions are still laying out on the front lawn or on the porch or if they look inside the window, it's still in the kitchen, in the bedrooms a reminder that nothing lasts. Nothing earthly lasts. Uh, We take our belongings and our possessions and our money, we take these things very seriously in this life. And and in, in a certain way, we must. We must take them seriously. But we have to do so knowing that in a future generation, our prized possessions will either belong to someone else or they will be in a garbage heap or they'll disintegrate from the elements. You know, they won't belong to us anymore, one way or the other. Well, the Eighth Commandment, which again, as you shall not steal, speaks directly to our attitude about our possessions, about our money and our property, the things that we acquire with that money. It gives us an ideal 
to strive for, which is to recognize that earthly possessions have some importance, but not eternal importance. You can't take, you can't take them with you, the old saying goes. Maybe that's in a song, I don't know. But you can't take it with you. You can't take any of it with you. People try to by being buried with various keepsakes and things like that, but nobody's enjoying those. Uh, they are disintegrating as well in the grave. And as we work toward that ideal of having a, a, the proper weight placed on our money and possessions, as we work toward that ideal with God's help, I think we can see that we're really just stewards. We're stewards of things that have been given to us by God at that ultimate level. Uh, technically speaking, it has all come from God. Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? You've received it all. Even though he, you may have received it through the means of your own hard work, it still is something that has been given to you by God, the author of all good things. We are just temporary owners. That's what we mean by stewards. We're just taking care of things while we're passing through. And, uh, well, passing through or until the Lord returns. You know, one, one way or the other. And today we're going to look at uh, the marks of stewardship when it turns greedy, which is that sin which we all struggle with to one degree or another. Then on the other end of the spectrum, grateful stewardship. What does it look to, to be godly in the way that we steward our possessions? And, uh, and, and how Christ makes the difference in shifting in repentance from greedy stewardship to grateful stewardship. Let's look at the marks of greedy stewardship then. God's word uses and defends the category of private property. Now, it's no small thing. It is in God's very law, protections for possessions that belong to someone else. If something legitimately belongs to you, then it is truly wrong for someone else to take it for themselves. That's wrong. That's uh, abominable in the eyes of God. The catechism gives us basically three categories of an unfaithful approach to property. So we, we have to hear both things. Property is a real and legitimate category, and your personal and private property is something important. There is weight to it. So it deserves your, your time and, and your thought. But also, there are unfaithful ways to approach your own personal property. And again, the catechism gives us basically three categories. There's outright theft, where you forcibly take someone else's property or money and make it your own. And the Catechism clarifies that that is that kind of outward and external sin that even our governing authorities, believing and not, punish by law, that they ought to punish by law. There's also, secondly, then, not just outright theft, but there's the intention to take something unfairly, uh, whether you act upon it or not. The intention of the heart, also, which may or may not, you know, whatever you're conceiving of, may or may not be illegal in the eyes of the law, but it is still wicked in God's sight. Because again, God's law goes to the heart. It commands even obedience from your, your inner self. There's a third category, which is the wicked use of your own possessions. So we're basically thinking about two kinds of stealing. One is outright stealing, one is the intention to steal. And then there is the unwise, the unholy, the wicked use of the possessions that you already have. Outright theft is simple enough to understand, and it's obvious enough for the civil government to identify it and punish it. And it is their job to punish that crime in a just and proportionate manner. 
So that's the job of the civil magistrate that is given by God to them as a, a kind of minister of his word to dole out proportionate and just punishments for the crime of stealing. God's word sees that as completely legitimate. That is proper and orderly for a just society. So to engage in theft like that, if, you, if you're a professing believer and you engage in outright theft, it is a sure sign that you don't understand what it means to steward God's gifts. You are actually acting upon it. You know, whatever belongs to someone else is God's gift to them, not to you. And so in that sense, they are entitled to that gift. It is their property. Beyond this, this command also speaks to the desire or the intent to get something in unfair or unjust ways. Unfair, unjust ways. We read in Deuteronomy 25 earlier in this service that God commands his people to use accurate weights and measurements in all their exchanges. So that if goods are being weighed out so that somebody knows how much they cost, the weights being used are accurate weights. And it's not being, the, the merchandise is, is not being taken in an unfair or an unholy way. Um, this can happen in a variety of ways. You can either intend to do it and not act upon it, which would be a wicked intention. Or you can actually go through with something like this and uh, perhaps it's done in a manner that it doesn't catch the eyes of the law and therefore you can technically get away from, uh, get away with it in terms of uh, the civil magistrates being able to do something about it. Well, that's not the point. The point isn't whether or not you can get away with it. The point is whether or not you recognize that God is the giver of all good things and it doesn't belong to you. So that you, you must be willing to turn away from that particular kind of wickedness as well. Even innocent looking schemes to get something in a way that truly damages someone's livelihood or reputation is a violation of this command. So we must be very careful, even as Christians, that just because it's in the air in one way or the other does not automatically make it innocent in the eyes of God. We ought to come with, uh, with Scripture's spectacles to all of our business dealings, whether we are buying or selling and the like. So it's, a, it's right to examine your own practices, whether you are employee or employer, and to hold those things up to the light of God's law. Those are those two categories of stealing. There's that third category then that is underneath the umbrella of the Eighth Commandment, and it is that wicked use of your own possessions. The wicked use of your own possessions. And I think that this is the one that we as believers are most likely to be blind to in our own hearts. Because it includes the indulgent uses of money and property. To overindulge. To look for kind of ultimate comfort and security in created things that belong to you, rather than looking to God. That'd be one example of that. Or, also included, is the, an unwillingness to use your money and property for relieving the needs of others, especially the poor among God's people. That is a positive call from God's law to God's people, is to work hard, as we, uh, as we read, to, to work hard enough to share with those who are in need. God repeatedly indicts the Israelites in the Old Testament for their failure to provide for the poor. Because in the law, in the law that he gave to Moses and to the Israelites, if they were going to actually obey that law, then God said, there will be no needs among you. There will be no lack among you. If there then is 
still poor people among the people of God, then something has gone haywire. Perhaps it's of their own doing and their own sin. But also, so many times the prophets cry out on God's behalf that the people of God and the leaders in particular have not shown kindness and provided for widows, orphans, and the poor. We heard Jesus tell the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. This fool who has a great measure of success. And instead of using that success and the surplus of his success to help and bless bless others, he stores it all up in order to maximize his own uh, ease and his own comfort in an overindulgent way for the rest of his life. Be it, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. doesn't matter to this particular man whether or not there are others in his purview that have needs that he could relieve. And God says, Jesus says in the parable that God responds to this man, you're a fool. This, this very day your life is required of you. Now who's going to own all this stuff? Now you could have given it to those who had needs and instead you kept it for yourself. You see, the Eighth Commandment exposes our tendency to indulge in our possessions in one way or the other. This is a very uncomfortable commandment to deal with in our own lives because we, especially in the West and in such a prosperous country as the United States, are generally unaware of overindulgence in our own hearts. Um, We tend to indulge in our possessions. We always want more rather than being content with what's been given. And we tend to hoard rather than to help others. Those are some examples of a greedy approach to stewardship. And at the base of it is basically an assumption that these things belong to me and I get to do what I want with them. Thank you very much. That's the end of the story. Rather than recognizing all that you have has been given to you by God, it is being, now you must use it for the love of God and for the love of your neighbor. Well, we're on our way then to understanding what grateful stewardship looks like, but first we need to see the difference that Christ makes. How, how does Christ speak to this particular sin in our own hearts and our own tendencies in violating it? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read about a, a great financial gift that many churches contributed to. But Paul praises in particular the churches of Macedonia. And he says that even in their poverty, they, quote, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They were actually impoverished, financially speaking, you know, and, and relatively speaking, as a bunch of members of, of a variety of churches. They were impoverished, and yet they overflowed. They gave beyond their means, Paul goes on to say. He gave beyond. Why is that example so praiseworthy? Now, part of it is just easy to see. You know, honesty, or, uh, uh, generosity of that kind, even the world recognizes that that's praiseworthy. But beyond that, it demonstrates how the gospel affects how we think even about our own money and our property. It all comes down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not leave this in the abstract. He says, basically, he's saying, You've done this because you know what Jesus Christ has done for you. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he has become poor to make you rich. So the gospel speaks even to these very particular parts of our lives. Christ has done something for us that sets an example for us in life and in godliness. No one higher has gone lower than Jesus Christ. He's arrayed in splendor and ended up in the grave. 
this is speaking about a spiritual richness being exchanged for spiritual poverty. That is what Jesus Christ has done in the gospel. And if this is true, then the question that this commandment, the Eighth Commandment, poses to us is how can we persist in selfishness, in greediness, and in an unwillingness to share? My father-in-law is a pastor, and he has a quote on the office of his wall that says, I, don't, I can't remember who it's from, but it says, God has humbled himself, and man is still proud. We might adapt it when we think about this commandment. We might adapt it to say, God has impoverished himself, and man is still greedy. See, that, that's, the, that's the core problem with greed and with an unwillingness to allow this commandment to reach to every part of our lives is that we want to cling to our possessions in an in a, a, a unmoderated way, an immoderate way, and to, to lean on them and to trust in them, to enjoy them in a way that is meant to be uh, entrusted only to God. In Jesus Christ, we see the glorious one laying down all of his riches, as Paul says, to make us rich. He's done this exchange on our behalf, and this is uh, that spiritual wealth which comes to us which informs how we deal with our material wealth as well. So it is to reorient us in how we see and use and make use of our earthly possessions and to do so in a godly way. That's the difference that Jesus Christ makes when it comes to this commandment. Now then, once we've received that gospel and we recognize that it touches this part of our lives, what then become the marks of grateful stewardship? Well, we are called to put to death our greedy approach to God's good gifts, and instead to begin to steward them with gratefulness and with gratitude. Here's some, some marks of grateful stewardship, and most of these come as adapted from Zacharias or Sinus himself, who wrote the catechism. Uh, so straight from the horse's mouth. He says, uh, basic, I'm paraphrasing, but basically grateful stewards practice fair exchanges. Fair exchanges. This is whether you're on the job or you are uh, uh, buying something at the grocery store, whether you are buying or selling. To the best of your ability, especially when you are the one selling, doing business in that manner, we are to practice fair exchanges. That's uh, justice. That's what justice and order looks like. Um, Another mark is that grateful stewards are content. We practice contentment with our possessions. Um, it doesn't mean that we, don't all, we, we never acquire something new. It means that what we already have, we give thanks to the Lord for and enjoy it in a, in a moderate and godly way. And we're happy with it. Happy with it. I'll just put out there that it's the holiday season. And uh, on Christmas Day, we're actually going to be dealing with the commandment not to covet, which is just per... I did not even think about that. Um, <laughs> So we're on our way there, but we ought to remember this now as we're talking about stealing and greed and so forth uh, because lots of things are being bought and sold uh, right now at this particular time of year. So we ought to be content with what we have. Another mark of grateful stewardship is that uh, Christians who have taken this on work hard not only to provide for their own family, but to share with others. So... There is an overabundance, a principle of overabundance that we are to practice, which is I'm going to work in such a manner that I I will try with the best of my ability and in the circumstances that God has placed me in 
to not just provide the bare minimum, but to be able to share. Um, and the, the example of the Macedonians is, is very helpful and convicting in this because out of their poverty, they still share generously. And that takes us to this final reflection here on the marks of grateful stewardship, which is that those who are grateful stewards are generous. This is the old way of speaking about the word liberal. There's liberality, meaning the, you just want to give. You want to give. It's true generosity. And uh, this extends to the opening of our homes, the sharing of our possessions, our food, the, the sharing and uh, using of our money for the relief of others. Some of the most moving examples of generosity in the Bible come from poor people, whether the Macedonians that we've already read about or the widow at the temple who gives the, the very last of all that she had. And Jesus says that's more than all the big gifts that the other people gave because she gave out of her poverty. How much more should we be generous when we are usually those who have far more than we need? That is the, the, the easy burden of Jesus Christ that is to lay upon us as we uh, consider how best to relieve the needs of the people around us to be generous and so forth. Loved ones in Christ, it is, uh, it's easy to get caught up in overindulgence. Very easy. Because everything is easy to get, relatively speaking. In our day and age, we, we have far beyond what most people in history, the vast majority of people in world history, ever thought was possible for a person to have unless you were royalty. And then we go beyond that. Now, our comforts are immense. Our riches are immense. And it is very easy to get caught up in overindulgence. To functionally love our possessions and our money more than God. And more than our neighbors. So do not allow this materialistic age to suck you in. To make it seem as though true comfort, security, enjoyment is found in possessions or in money. But remember that the Savior has become poor for your sake. And in remembering that, find your wealth and your contentment in Him. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for having established your covenant with believers and their children. For as you have told us, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This promise you have not only signified and sealed by holy baptism, but daily proved by perfecting your praise through the mouths of children, and so putting to shame the wise and understanding of this world. Continue to establish your saints in this faith throughout their lives, so give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given us and to instruct our children in your knowledge and fear until they have reached complete maturity. All of this we ask for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit are one God, forever blessed. Amen.